You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert and I am joined tonight by my co-host Tony and we are doing a recap of the Willow 300 sled dog race. It just finished today. The banquet is going on as we speak Alaska time and it was an interesting weekend for a sled dog race up here in Willow. Uh, From a musher's perspective, I was out with three teams today. It is quite warm, quite punchy. A lot of the snow is gone that was here just a couple of weeks ago. And I know that they had some interesting trail conditions uh, on this race, including some very deep overflow. Tony, talk about the finishers who won who came in second, third, fourth, fifth. And I understand we had some scratches. Is that right? Yeah, we had four scratches, which honestly I expected more with the weather, the way that it is, it's starting to feel like breakup in Alaska, which that's about two and a half months too soon. So there were four teams that decided to pack it in early. They had young dogs that just did not want to complete a 300 mile slog fest. Uh, which is completely understandable. But as far as who won, it was, of course, Nicholas Petit. He came in right around 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, uh, followed closely by Hunter Keefe, who was running dogs out of Barb and Ramey Reddington's kennel. Dan Caduce was a solid third with Milla Porcelain and Travis Beal rounding out the top five. Milla and Travis kind of butted heads all the way through the, the race. Um, they were really battling for that fourth place position. I'm sure they were battling for the first place position, but in that last leg, they were definitely uh, giving each other some, some heartburn, at least, trying to get to that finish line. Um, and then Hunter said that he was in his last leg. He kept looking behind him because he just knew Dan was right on his heels with a really strong team of all 14 dogs. Not sure if Dan was the only one to complete the race with all of the dogs he started with, um, but this is becoming kind of a habit for Dan. He's able to go the distance with all of his dogs, and I think that's just a huge um, testament to how well he's not only trained his dogs, but how well he takes care of his dogs. It doesn't matter if it's a 200-mile race, a 300-mile race, or as we saw in Iditarod, a 900 to a thousand mile race. Yeah. And I want to talk about Nick in just a second, but I'm looking at the um, finishing times. You had mentioned Nick came in at 2.03 PM and then Keaton Lowbrick, I believe is how you say that name mm-hmm. came in at 5.42 AM this morning. So about what is that? 16 or 17 hours separated the front from the back. And that's becoming more common, especially in, Iditarod, that field is really closing in, isn't it? It isn't the days where, you know, um, in these Iditarod qualifiers that that the the finishers 
well after the banquet, possibly even, you know, the next day. It's really becoming a much closer race than just a few years ago, isn't it? It is, and I think that's a lot to do with just how races have changed. We've seen it in Iditarod and Quest, where if you are not deemed competitive very early on, you are asked to um, withdraw or scratch. Uh, And we're seeing that now in the shorter races. We saw that earlier this year. uh, I believe it was the Knick 200. One of Nick's puppy teams was asked to withdraw because they were having quite the difficult time uh, sticking with the back of the pack. So they were asked to scratch, um, which they did. So it, it's kind of interesting. I, I honestly haven't been following the mid-distance races like I did. I did a rod from the time I was a kid um, with any real like knowledge to go back and say, oh yeah, this is just something they've been doing recently or not. But it does feel like a recent change. Normally the qualifiers were like, we just want to get you finished. We want to, we want to pass or a fail. And anything that isn't a finish is considered a fail on that report card for Iditarod and Quest. So let's just get you finished. Um, My first Sesamina 200, where I was the official photographer, um, you know, people were coming in way after the the awards banquet and way after I had to actually leave to be able to be at work the next morning. So it seems, it, it, it does, it seems like everything's going faster and faster but to be fair this particular race it was so warm i don't think anybody wanted to be out there one minute more than they had to be yeah and let's talk a little bit about nick before we talk about uh the goings on in the races he is really uh cementing himself into these mid-distance races as the preeminent dog musher i mean over the last few years he's won a lot of these and i know he really um uh, hyped it up by not winning the Connect 200 a few weeks ago, but man, this guy, he's on fire. If he could just kick it into gear <laughs> one more time, I think he would be a force to be reckoned with on Iditarod. And of course he does great in Iditarod anyway, but my goodness, he, he cleans house, doesn't he? He does. And I think part of it is, you know, his strategy, or he says he has no strategy. He just lets the dogs go with whatever, and he just goes with the flow. Um, I think if he did rein that in a little bit more and did maybe coach the dogs a little bit more in the more traditional stylized way that we see in a Dallas CV or a Brent Sass, um, a Wade Mars, that sort of thing where they are on a set schedule and they're going to do that and they're not going to deviate too much depending on what the competitors are doing. Um, They're not going to just fall into that rhythm of, oh, the dogs look really good, so let's just keep at this pace. Because as we've seen over the years with Nick, and I know I'm going to get in trouble, I get in trouble every time from his kennel and his fans when I bring this up, but we see it every time. He gets about 600 miles into Iditarod, and the dogs poop out. Um, you know, you can, you can blame it on attitudes of the dogs or anything, but you can't run dogs as long and as fast as he does and make it to gnome in first place we've seen that time and again um and i think it's just management you know hold back on them those first few days of iditarod and then let let the let the foot off the brake just a couple days into the race not from the get-go and wasn't nick one of the couple of mushers that decided to pull out of the cusco 300 pretty much Mm -hmm. at the last minute and uh, sign up for this one right 
He did. Yeah. It was one of those things where he said that um, there wasn't enough time between the win of the Copper Basin um, to get ready for the Cusco to fly out there for the dogs to be ready. So instead he joined a race that was the starting two and a half days before. But I guess with travel, it would be about the same. So it makes sense to, to run a race closer to home because it's almost in his backyard now that he lives in Big Lake. Yeah, and for folks that are listening, the Cusco 300 is going on as we speak, and we're going to do our mm-hmm. recap of that show on Monday night. So please stay tuned. And if you have not, hit that subscribe button. So before the race even started, we're talking about the Willow 300 here. There was a little bit of a mix-up. I guess the trackers didn't arrive in time. And at the last minute, they said, wait a second, we're not leaving at 10 a.m. We're leaving at, or excuse me, 9 a.m. We're leaving at 10. We're not doing a mass start. We're doing something else. So a lot of the stuff that we talked about on... Tuesday night, I guess, uh, really changed. And for folks that are listening, we have to clear this up right in, right away. When we report on these races, we're doing it in a moment in time. So we're recording this right now on Saturday night at about 7.23 in the evening, Alaska time. And nothing can change on the Willow, but it definitely could change on the other races. But remember, we're reporting at a moment in time. So uh, if we get something wrong, we apologize. We definitely cannot go back in and re-record or release a special report or something like that. But with that and with the different start time and uh, the trail conditions and all that, we really talked up Ramey Smith before the race on our preview show. And he didn't even run, did he? He didn't. It was really weird because um, on Tuesday night, after we re they announced the final lineup with um, all of the changes, which was they were going to start at 9 a.m. and they were going to do a two-minute differential start, not a mass start, because they were having to start in the parking lot of the community center, not on the lake, because of overflow concerns. So um, they announced it, and Ramey Smith had dropped from the 300 to the 150, and then by the time the 150 started on Wednesday morning, Ramey wasn't there at all. He had decided to withdraw. And I assume, I didn't hear any reason why, but I assume it was due to concerns of weather and trail conditions being too warm. There, there's just something about not putting a dog team that maybe isn't um, ready for it to just go through a slog fest. I'm just spitballing. I'm assuming I have not heard one way or the other why Ramey chose not to run the Willow 300 or 150. Um, but yeah, I had to laugh because I was like, Haha, I didn't jinx anybody, but Robert did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and uh, we do have to uh, throw a little shade on uh, the Willow 300. In past years, they've done really, really well uh, with their race coverage. They did excellent updates. The trackers were in order. And I know that's not 100% on them, but they just weren't doing as they've done in the past. And there was a lot of fans a little bit frustrated, weren't there? You know, it wasn't just fans. I was hearing it from people on the ground, and I'm not going to name names or anything because it's not my place to do so. But there was a lot of lack of communication was the, um, the biggest complaint. The trackers, you can't really fault them for that. If the trackers didn't get there in time, they didn't get there in time. Um, so the trail on the map was not completely correct. 
But instead of just simply saying, hey, we couldn't edit the map before they went out. So yeah, they, they're not, their flags are not matching up with the red line. We did post this picture of the actual map. Go by that, see if you can kind of toggle back and forth. I don't think that would have been too hard to say. Instead, when people were asking questions about the tracker map and then also asking for the official in and out times, which this was not just a fan concern, but this was also the, the handler and kennel concerns because they too did not have any information to give out to fans and sponsors. Um, but instead of just saying, hey, you know what, we're short staffed, we're not going to be able to give you all of this information, everybody got kind of butt hurt about it. And so there were comments by race officials on some posts, there were comments by some of the volunteers on the post saying, well, I guess next year when you all come out and volunteer, it'll be so much better. And it just was, and I'm, I'm obviously putting my own tone on it, but that's how it came off, not just to me, but to about 95% of the people following the race. And if you go on almost any of the mushing fan groups on Facebook, that's what they were complaining about. I was not the only one that was like, all right, then I'm out. I don't need to report on this. I don't need to follow along. I've got two other sled dog races coming up that, you know, they may or may not have more information for me, but they're going to respect that this is how races are run. We've always had in and out times, even before GPS. I did a rod, you knew when people got in and got out and it was like that with races before I did a rod. So I don't wanna hear this whole thing of we think we're better than they are or getting butt hurt. It was a simple question. A lot of fans asked. They did not deserve to have that attitude thrown back at them. That's just my feeling. I'm getting off my soapbox now. I've probably made some very angry people, but that's just my feeling. Well, that's why we do the podcast so we can uh, so we can talk about what uh, what the fans are interested in. And this is just like any other sports podcast or radio show in the world. We get to say what we want because hey, it's it's our show. So if you don't like it, comment on our social feeds. Let us know what we're doing right or wrong, and uh, we will we will talk about it on the next show. So you know, I'm of the opinion, and I know Michelle and I were talking about this earlier. I fully expect that whoever is doing the web postings, the Facebook postings, whomever, they should be at a desk somewhere sitting there doing that as their job, their duty, their mm -hmm. their position. It should not be the race crew. It should not be somebody on the trail at a checkpoint. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be somebody's handler's mom doing it. It should be a dedicated person <laughs> that is doing these updates. Iditarod does it. They're all volunteers. Uh, you can find somebody in this community. There are enough mushing fanatics in Willow. I live here. I know that would be happy to sit somewhere and do this. I know you, in years past, they used to call the uh, Sheep Creek Lodge. Is it Sheep Creek or Sheep Mountain? Sheep Creek. Sheep Creek Lodge Sheep Creek. is sort of the race headquarters, and there would be a, a couple of people they're doing that. I know that they really had a board shakeup over the last couple of years, and those people are no longer there. But that's that's how you play the game, and I think that that's an important thing to do. And when we talk about 
some of these other races, including the John Bear Grease Marathon that we're recording right after this, and it will release tonight as well. And the Cusco 300 Mm -hmm. recap coming up in a couple of days. We're going to see how they pan out and and what they do on their end as well. So, Tony, before we go, there was a lot of reports of just a sloggy trail, a lot of overflow. And I know Mm -hmm. one person in particular, Julia Deloach, uh, had an amazing story about her quest to get across a huge Gap of overflow, I guess. I get. I guess it was waist deep, and she was having a heck of a time. And she called the race marshal, trying to figure out what she should do. And she ended up going across several times to get her dogs across and her gear. Her sled was stuck under an ice bank. It was. It was an ordeal, and that was one heck of a story she told. I'm of the opinion that some of the best stories in mushing are after the race and whether it's the handlers or the mushers themselves, but man, we've got a lot of good storytellers, don't we? We do. And, you know, I think mushers are like fishermen in Alaska. Some stories, they become legends. Um, But for the most part, yeah, especially since a lot of the times you get the race updates about a day after they've had a chance to maybe take a nap and they get to thinking about it. They're like, you know, that wasn't exactly the safest thing that I could have been doing or, or whatever. And so they, they're very open. They're very honest about some of the exciting um, things that they do and see. And they downplay it with, and yet at the same time, they don't. Like, it's still this big, grandiose story, but they downplay it like, well, that's just mushing. You know, that's just a, that's, this is why we do it. And I'm sitting there going, that wouldn't be why I did it, but okay. So it's a lot of fun. I didn't actually see Julia's story, so I'm going to have to go back and and look it up later. But uh, I'm surprised we don't have more stories of overflow and maybe we will in the coming days. But um, yeah, what a, what a trail. Hopefully it sets up a little bit more uh, in the coming weeks for Iditarod because nobody's going to want to do that again. Yeah, and, and very quickly before we hit the the end button, we talked a little bit about the Willow 150, which is also an Iditarod qualifier. We talked about Emily and Walter Robinson, and those were sort of our one-two picks uh, going in on our preview show, and they finished one-two. And uh, let's mm-hmm. see, what is it? Seven, eight people finished the 150 and there was a little bit difference in the time differential between that first place team and that last place team that we talked about before. Uh, well, about, about the same, uh, 11 hours or so. Yeah. So not, not too bad. They even, they even sort of stayed on track there as well. So anyway, that is our recap of the Willow 300 sled dog race. I hope you guys like what we're talking about. If not, let us know in the comments section. (laughs) You can always follow us on social media. Tony, where's the best place to follow you? Um, Right now, I think my blog's probably the best place. So it's writersblock.com. You can also look me up on Twitter. I'm at TonyShellAK, but right now it's locked down for some personal reasons. So the blog's probably the best bet. And I am at Robert Forto on all social media. And if you like, you can follow the show on social media at First Paw Media. I am Robert for Tony. We will talk to you guys next time. Goodbye. 
From DogWorks Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.